Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. A host of things to talk about in this episode. Now it's Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson after a contentious confirmation hearing. A big win for Amazon workers in New York. The war on Ukraine drags on, and it is on Ukraine. It drags on with no end in sight. Scandal at the border, but not the kind you think. And Will Smith in timeout for 10 years. First, some history making. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson has become the first black woman to win confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, she is not the first woman of color. After all, Sonia Sotomayor is not chopped liver. Yet soon-to-be Justice Brown Jackson has struck a chord among black folks, most notably black women. It's as if all the oppression and abuse hurled at them by America has been mitigated at least a little bit. Her impact will be felt not just by the decisions rendered by the high court, but in the aspirations of young black girls and women throughout America. Don't ask me why, but the first thing I thought about after hearing of Judge Brown Jackson's confirmation was the four little girls named Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. They were the four little girls ages 11 to 14 who were killed by racists in a Birmingham, Alabama church in 1964. I can't help feeling they were martyred all those years ago so that this day of confirmation could come. Let's be clear about the fact that much work still needs to be done. The composition of the Supreme Court remains the same. Only time can change that. In the meantime, all of America should rejoice in Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation. And while we're at it, we should say that there should never again be the kind of confirmation hearing she had to endure. Republicans in the Senate acted, well, like Republicans in the Senate, trying their best to find some reason, any reason, to vote against her. Fortunately, three GOP senators, Collins, Romney, and Murkowski, saw sense and voted to confirm. The next time all eyes will be on the high court is when they decide what, if anything, to do about Roe v. Wade. One thing I heard during the Brown-Jackson drama that I didn't expect was some criticism about the fact that she's married to a white man. In black America, interracial marriage is a third rail, potentially divisive component of our lives. Anyone with a rudimentary knowledge of history knows that white attitudes toward interracial relationships were well known. Until 1967, those relationships were illegal in at least one American state. As time has gone on, interracial relationships and marriage has received some serious pushback from within the black community. This has been particularly fierce when black male athletes or entertainers marry outside the race. Since I have a number of people in my own family who have spouses who are not black, I've often wondered what all the fuss is about. That is, until my wife, a product of an interracial marriage herself, explained a few things to me. It really never dawned on me that there are some black people, women and men, who would criticize a bad-mouthed person for being half black and half white. It is, after all, an accident of birth. I never realized the feeling of isolation that comes with being treated as other within your own community. My educated guess 
is that when that type of prejudice may wane and hopefully will wane over time, but when I heard it from a small group of black people being critical of Judge Brown Jackson, I gotta be honest, it surprised me a wee bit. I'm truly hoping the people who post on social media about this are outliers, especially in this day and age. I've always believed most people choose who they want to be with based on a number of factors beyond race. I also know that for some, race is a determining factor in looking for a partner of choice. There ought to be room for both without rancor and without recrimination. Up next, the latest from Ukraine, Blinken's promise and Boris Johnson's surprise visit. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Those who opined at the beginning of the war in Ukraine that it would drag on for the long haul are being proven right. Last week began with announcements from NATO countries that they were ramping up sanctions. Wait, what? I thought they were already at maximum capacity. To hear you tell it, each country, day by day, week by week, talking about, we're ramping up sanctions. I guess they weren't ramping them up quite as much as people thought. Besides, does anybody think sanctions at this point will stop Vladimir Putin? To my mind, it's like telling a pit bull you won't feed it when it's got its teeth sunk into your leg. It seems no amount of sanctions will stop the acts of barbarism being attributed to the Russian invasion. The shelling, the bombing, the indiscriminate murder of men, women, and children are daily bolstering Ukrainian claims of war crimes. Will the UN suspension of Russia from its Human Rights Council and the EU's decision to stop importing Russian coal make a serious difference? Probably not, especially since the EU will not ban imports of Russian gas and oil. Meanwhile, as we told you last episode, Russian forces appear to be moving away from the capital Kyiv and concentrating its attacks on the eastern region of Donbass. Residents of at least one city in that region have been told to evacuate. At the same time, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has pledged to provide the Ukrainian military with more sophisticated military hardware as well as training on how to use that hardware. Now, this has been controversial because there have been some people who have alleged, I don't know where they get their information from, but that that stuff has already gone to the Ukraine and that actually Blinken is just playing catch up or just trying to cover for the fact that the Ukrainians have already got that sort of thing, those that sort of military hardware from the U.S. The problem, of course, is what does Putin see as a provocation? Because this, as it was announced by Secretary Blinken, is a serious upturn in what the U.S. is doing for Ukraine. And, by the way, something that President Zelensky has been asking for for the last little while. Now, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson made a surprise visit to Kiev and met with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Can this new hardware stop the Russian onslaught? Time will tell but it looks like a negotiated settlement that might pass muster with Ukraine may be just a little bit more possible than it was a week or two weeks 
or three weeks ago. In the meantime, the fighting, the loss of life continues. Closer to home, what exactly is going on over at the Department of Homeland Security? The New York Times has a disturbing article that says the department's inspector general directed staff to remove damaging findings of domestic violence and sexual misconduct from investigative reports. The conduct, according to the Times, was on the part of officers in the DHS's law enforcement agencies. One probe found more than 10,000 employees of Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Secret Service, and the Transportation Security Administration had experienced either sexual harassment or misconduct. That's one-third of their entire workforce. This was according to a draft report from December 2020, which was never published. Repeat, never published. That report also detailed the pattern of agencies using cash payments as high as more than a quarter of a million dollars to settle sexual misconduct claims without investigating them or disciplining the alleged perpetrators. The Times article says the Inspector General objected to that finding and also directed his staff to remove parts of another draft report that showed dozens of officers working at these agencies committed domestic violence but also received little or no discipline. This is no joke. The fact that one-third of a government workforce reported experiencing sexual harassment or misconduct and little or nothing was done about it, that's heinous. Heinous. Think about this for a minute. Government workers, some of whom are armed, are found to have committed acts of domestic violence and evidence of same in a report that was deleted by order of an inspector general. It was only after the Times piece dropped that the Department of Homeland Security announced it was starting a review of its disciplinary processes for employee misconduct. To top it off, the report that detailed all this has yet to see the light of day. Is it me? Am I the only one who thinks this whole thing reeks of sexism? And this from a department whose law enforcement agencies are supposedly trying to recruit women. Does anyone, for example, think for a minute that if workers at any DHS agency were found to be sniffing cocaine, it would be whitewashed like this? To me, it all goes back to how women are treated in the workplace. Despite all the platitudes, despite all the flowery language, despite all the talking points from countless PR people, the problem is that workplace sexual harassment continues. And I'll tell you what's even worse. Most did not report this experience of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct to the tune of 78%. How does an agency tasked with enforcing the laws of the nation, how do they get away with this? How does this happen? Heads ought to roll, and anyone who assaults their spouse or can't control their base sexual impulses on the job should immediately seek other employment, period. Up next, Amazon workers in one New York City warehouse win a big union battle. So do six more Starbucks shops in upstate New York. A new day for unionism? This is The Intersection.
It's springtime and you're listening to Mark Riley, the intersection of politics and culture. Welcome again to The Intersection. Amazon, one of the few companies that made huge amounts of money during the pandemic, has made no secret about the fact that they want nothing to do with unions. Their public face is that thousands of contented workers pushing out millions of packages to homes around the world are happy as they can be. That's what made the victory by the Amazon Labor Union at the company's Staten Island, New York warehouse so stunning. That and the fact that the union that got it done isn't one of the big boys and was led by a man who was fired by Amazon for, guess what? Labor organizing. Chris Smalls used grassroots organizing among current and former workers rather than traditional organizing involving professionals. Amazon, for its part, tried to counter the union the way corporations usually do. They held so-called information sessions, whose purpose was to dissuade workers from joining unions, also usually employing professionals. In Amazon's case, the grassroots won. They won despite Amazon's efforts to paint Chris Smalls as some hoodlum troublemaker. The real takeaway from the Amazon organizing, though, is that worker-to-worker communication actually works. There is a long road ahead, that is, for this new grassroots union. Amazon has options at its disposal, including refusing to recognize the union, or refusing to bargain, or dragging bargaining out until the workers get tired of seeing a lack of progress. They also have the option of bargaining in good faith, and reaching a fair and equitable contract agreement. One wonders if Jeff Bezos wants to jeopardize Amazon's $33.36 billion in net income on $469 billion in sales revenue last year alone. We'll also see if the union's success at one warehouse can be replicated at others around the country. Amazon isn't the only company that's seeing its workers vote to unionize. Starbucks, which by the way, has a reputation. I don't know whether it's deserved or not. I've never worked there, but they have a reputation of being relatively progressive as far as their workers are concerned. They are, of course, ubiquitous chain of coffee emporiums. They're also seeing a growing number of their stores deciding to unionize. Unlike Amazon, the Starbucks workers are organizing under the auspices of the Service Employees International Union. Their union, Workers United, has to date organized 16 company-owned stores out of a total of 9,000, which means, of course, they got a long way to go. Yet this resurgence, whether due to the pandemic, worker shortages, whatever, is starting to hold the promise of reversing years of union declines in both membership and in clout. This does my heart good because I have always considered myself a union guy. My dad was in a union, uh, the American Postal Workers Union, and I grew up understanding the power and value of unions. 
I myself belonged to the APWU, the Postal Workers Union, for a time. I also belonged to SAG-AFTRA, the uh, radio, TV union. Also belonged and worked for um, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association and 1199 SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, led by the visionary president, George Gresham. So I really, really have a thing in my heart, my heart of hearts for unions. So seeing this after again, seeing years and years and years of people saying pundits, even some union people saying that unions are on the way out, they're going to die. Their numbers did, in fact, decline. But the fact of the matter is, maybe, just maybe, we're seeing a new model, a new template. One of the things that Chris Smalls did in Staten Island was hold barbecues after work for people. And he talked to people, he and others who organized that union. They talked to people one-on-one, -on -one, not with talking points, not with pressure, but just to say, look, you can do better than this. You can have the dignity that maybe Amazon doesn't always afford their employees all the time. And it worked. It worked. It worked at Starbucks, where people, it's a small number of stores, 16 out of 9,000, but it could be the beginning of a trend. And that would certainly do this old man's heart a great deal of good. And finally, Will Smith got 10 years in time out from the Motion Picture Academy. Now, I have to be honest with you about this. I wanted to get excited enough to have an opinion, but to be honest, there are more important things in the world right now. I don't know, you know, maybe there's some people who will continue to bat back and forth. Pundits are great for this. You know, some people will point to Roman Polanski or this one or that one and say, well, Will Smith, he's not getting nearly as much uh, 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 trouble as some other people have. Or he'll, they'll say they never, they took them 40 years to get rid of Roman Polanski. It took them a long time to get rid of Harvey Weinstein. So why is Will Smith bearing this brunt? Maybe he'll get, the, as Ricky Gervais said, time off with good behavior. But I got to be honest, again, there are more important things talk about in the world about now. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.